there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. This week, we'll talk to my friend, holistic dietitian Cindy Klinger, and find out what she really wants you to know about her father's suicide. Also on the show today, a listener messaged me on Facebook for advice on her grandmother's upcoming funeral, and I share some things that I learned about grief and grieving after airing my very honest truth episode last week. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who gives people the tools, space, and support to come back to life after loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coming Back. I am so honored to have you here listening today. Before we start, I have a small favor to ask of you. I'm really excited because my birthday is in 10 days on August 12th, and I will be turning 25, a whole quarter of a century. Um, And there's always been some humor in me turning 25 because of a funny story that involves my mom that I'd like to share with you. So once when my sister and I were younger, we were watching something on TV in the afternoon on on PBS or one of those educational channels. I think it was like Antique Roadshow or Storage Wars or Flea Market Hacks or something. I don't remember. (laughs) But what I do remember is at one point during the episode, the host is talking to somebody selling their wares in a booth. And they said, well, you know, anything over 25 years old is considered an antique. (laughs) <laughs> and and grief growers, I wish I could give you a visual of this. My sister and I sitting on the floor watching TV, we rotated our heads so slowly after we heard this. We did the slowest slow motion head turn towards my mom, who was sitting on the couch behind us watching the show. And this huge devious smile came over both of our faces. And we said, Mom, you're an antique. (laughs) And, and my mom was never somebody who was overly hung up on her age. It didn't really seem to affect her, uh, how old she was, but, but being called an antique seemed to matter in that moment. And, and she pretended to be mad. She rolled her eyes at us. And I think if I remember correctly, I think she used the line that she had used so many times when she was fed up with our antics, which was stupid kids. And, and turning 25 or being over 25 became a running joke for us. And that's something that's always stuck with me and stuck with my sister. So when my sister and I were talking on the phone last week, she said, this is your antique year. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, you're turning 25. You're going to be an antique. So, so grief growers for my 25th birthday, for this antique birthday, I have a favor to ask you, a gift if you're into giving birthday gifts. Sometime between now and August 12th, I would love for my birthday if you rated and reviewed my work over on my Facebook page, which is Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide. I know so many of you are active with me on Facebook because I see your likes and your comments and and photos posted over there. And I would love if you could give me some stars and some thoughts about the work that I do. So if you've been a client of mine, tell us about your experience. If you listen to the podcast, Tell us what you think of the show or how it's impacted your life. If you just like the things that I post about grief and loss or the fact that 
we're normalizing grief one episode at a time. Let us know how reading those articles, how seeing that message has changed your outlook on grief and loss. My goal is to get 25 reviews for my 25th, (laughs) my antique birthday. I would be so, so grateful for your stars and your words. And again, that Facebook page is Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide. Now, I want to talk about last week. If you haven't listened to episode 11 called The Truth, I strongly encourage you to because you'll get a great idea of what I'm talking about now. This episode was a crazy and unexpected departure from my usual show format, and it's because I was grieving. I couldn't do anything more than last week's episode in terms of time or content. I I just couldn't. I was literally crying on this show. It was, this episode was a five minute long, just outpouring of everything that I was experiencing that day. It was the first time I just turned on the mic and started to speak. No, no script, no layout, no nothing. It was the first time besides my intro episode that I had done a really short episode. And Yes, it was the first time I have ever cried on this show. I won't necessarily go into into detail about what happened in my life last week, but if you'd like more insight than what I'm offering here, you can find a long-form post from me over in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, and I actually found a lot of support there last week. It was really amazing. But what happened basically is that my heart was broken. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's a better way to phrase it than that. My heart was broken. And it's so crappy because society says, or our parents say, we say brokenhearted or I'm heartbroken, and immediately it conjures up all these images of, of lost teenage puppy love or love that never got to be, like unrequited love, or being so sad someone's died that you can't function. And these are They're all singular images, but none of these are the full picture of heartbreak. They're valid. Yeah, they're 100% valid, but they're not, they're not the full picture or, um, at least they weren't for me last week. My reality of a broken heart was literally being cracked open to the darkness at the center of my spirit. It looked like an unshakable, firmly held belief that I had no ground to stand on, that all love and all trust I had ever been promised or given in my life was a lie, and that ultimately life is not worth living. I was in a place last week, I was in a place that was without love, without hope, and and without faith. And if you remember those three P's that hinder recovery that we talked about in episode two, they are the loss is my fault. The heartbreak affects all areas of my life. I will feel this grief forever. There is no way out. Yeah. It's dark. That's where I was last week. It was very dark. I was in a very dark place last week. And there's... Hmm, there's residual of that lingering now. Heartbreak just just doesn't vanish overnight, but I scared myself with how dark I got 
There was a point in my day where I couldn't take another rejection of my spirit, another piece of proof that my life doesn't look anything like I wanted it to or like I thought it would. And so I went into my room and I put down my bags and I shut the door. I put my favorite music right there in my ears and I fell to my knees and I just screamed. I raged. I I pounded my walls with my fists and my palms and my head and I made these guttural crying sounds. If you've ever seen like a toddler throw a tantrum in the grocery store, you know what the depth of these yells sound like, but this wasn't a tantrum. This wasn't about candy or a toy or or bedtime. This was this was about my life and my heart. It was about the pieces of my heart that I gave and the pieces that I could never get back and the pieces that I couldn't even feel anymore. I said, how dare you? I said, God, fuck you. I said, God, you left me here. Violation. Betrayal. Abandonment. This is what grief looks like. That's what my grief looked like last week. That was real for me. Unfortunately, my grieving and raging went on for a little too long, or it was too loud, (laughs) because my neighbors ended up calling the police. And I found myself sitting on the floor talking to an officer doing a wellness check about being brokenhearted. And after learning I was heartbroken, not injured or not mentally ill, he said talking gets it out. He said, just talking to you can't talk about it anymore. And yeah, I know. I do grief work. I know, I know, I know. The power and the impact of sharing our stories in a group. I've already seen it from this podcast here. But sometimes, and I'll hold on to this sometimes, you just need to scream. Yeah. If you remember in episode 5, I talked about losing our voices, keeping them in and stifling them when we're grieving, and how that really changes how we live. I knew last week intuitively that for this heartbreak to be felt and expressed and dissolved, it needed to be screamed. Sometimes it it just does, you know? We allow babies to cry until they're old enough to comprehend the words, don't cry, or you're making a scene, or all right, no treats for you later. We literally get punished for crying. But what does that do to all the emotions that we carry that we want to express? Where does that leave us when we're really hurt and we need to express ourselves through our voices? What does that do to our power? It squashes it. Yeah. And I know enough about grief and enough about my own coping methods to know that I couldn't stay squashed. I couldn't keep it in for for another minute. I could not contain my pain. That's just not me. I'm I'm I can't be a container anymore for pain. That's not me. So I I just let it out. And the police showed up. Yeah, it's funny that sirens are going around right by my window right now because that's who it was the police showed up but I got taken care of that day 
and I got in the shower, and I went to sleep. I reset. My goal in releasing last week's episode, Grief Growers, is to show you, to remind you, to tell you in my own sniffling and crying words that sometimes grief isn't attractive. Sometimes grief is just loaded with with pain. Sometimes grief is ugly and smeared and wet and loud and childish and nasty. It It is. And it brings up all of this crummy, filthy, terrifying, earth-shattering darkness in us. It brings all of our fears just right up to the surface. But what I found last week and what I'm still finding and what I'm still hearing from you and from all the truths that are shared in this episode is that the best way out is through. The best way for all of this emotion to come out of you is to let it move through you. Let it consume you. For as long as it needs to, let it consume you. Cry it out, scream it out, pound it out, play it out, drive it out, write it out, feel it out. I promise you, and I know it doesn't seem like it in the moment. I know, I know, I know it seems endless, but the pain will and does end. The pain is not your fault. You didn't choose this. The pain does not and cannot touch all aspects of your life. There is pure love out there in friends and family. And the pain will end. I am living proof of that. I'm not faking it this week, you guys. I'm okay. I'm not great, but I'm okay. The pain will end. I am living proof of that. And so are you. God, I love you, my grief growers. Thank you for supporting me through your words and your messages last week. Together, we can always make it through. Because we have before. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth I have for you this week. Up next, I'll answer a listener question about how to support family at a funeral. I got this question from a Facebook friend and fellow business owner, Mona Luan. Mona teaches Ashtanga Yoga for Beach Yoga Chicago, and I just absolutely love her. She's a person who inspires me to be more colorful and more true to myself, and I think that's just really cool. When I asked if I could air her question on the show, I asked her to give me a link to her work as well. So if you're into people with awesome rainbow hair or yoga in the Chicago area, you can find her work and links to her super cool social media. Her Instagram is my favorite over at monalovesyoga.com. That's Mona, M-O-N-A, loves as in adores, and yoga is in the practice of yoga.com. Mona wrote me last month. She said, Hi, Shelby. I just started listening to your podcast and OMG, your voice is so beautiful. Thank you, Mona. Do you have any resources on the grief and loss around dementia and Alzheimer's? My grandmother passed away over the weekend. It's a bittersweet passing since she's no longer suffering and I've kind of had to say goodbye a long time ago, but it's still a death and it's still sad. 
I'm going to the wake and church services in the next couple of days and don't really know how to handle death, like what to say to my family members that were much closer to her in order to support them. I replied, Hi, Mona. Oh, my goodness. I am so, so incredibly sorry. Despite the fact that saying goodbye a long time ago is a reality for you and your family, death is still kind of an end-all be-all. Good on you for recognizing that. In terms of resources, keep listening to the show. In episode three, I actually cover both of these topics. The listener question is about the definition of anticipatory grief, where we learn about what it's like to grieve people before they actually die. And I shared a story of a woman's journey with dementia with her husband in a facility. And then in the actual meat of the show and the heart of the show, there are nine ways to support someone who's grieving. First, in the immediate aftermath, second, in the weeks and months that follow, and then third, in a lifetime for a griever. So start there. Also, just big time breathe. And know that there is no wrong way to grieve unless you're telling somebody else how to. People will probably feel and express all kinds of emotions at this funeral. Relief, pain, humor, discomfort, sadness, silence, etc. Just let it all be, be, be. Also, if people are huggers or handholders, I find that physical contact at a funeral can often speak beyond our words, but definitely use your gut on that one. You've got this. So this is a short listener question this week, but super, super useful as a teachable moment. What do people need in the midst of loss? Stories and evidence of other people going through it. Check. Tips for responding to the people outside of themselves. Check. And the reassurance that someone believes in them and has their back. Check. If you're going to a funeral soon, trust me, you've got this. You do. Breathe for yourself. Be there and breathe. Listen to episode three of this podcast. There are so, so many ways to comfort people who are grieving, but mostly just be there for them. Cry with them. Listen to what they have to say about the person that you're losing. Ask them to tell stories and memories. These are the things that bond. Hug them. Hold their hands. Know that people are going to be thinking and feeling a huge variety of things. And that's just the nature of funerals as events. I've got your back. If you have tips for handling a funeral, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. If you're going to a funeral soon and would like the support of others, I strongly, strongly encourage you to join my private Facebook group called The Grief Growers Garden. We do a lot of listening and supporting and storytelling for each other there. You can ask your own question to be featured on the show, again by leaving a voicemail or texting 312-725-3043 or emailing shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, and you can always find both of these contacts in the show notes. Next up, we'll talk to Cindy Klinger about her father's suicide, caretaking, grieving, and becoming a voice for change. Cindy Klinger is a Chicago-based integrative dietitian whose work involves supporting people in reaching their health goals and feeling their best. 
Since her dad died in 2015 by medication-induced suicide, she helps to raise awareness about akathisia, a potential side effect of psychotropic and other medications that leads to such agitation and restlessness that it can cause suicide as well as homicide. She's on the board of MISSD, the Medication-Induced Suicide Prevention and Education Foundation in memory of Stuart Dolan, and is an advocate for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. This interview was recorded via phone. So I want to do something a little bit different on to open up this interview and have you share a piece that you wrote about your loss. Sure. So it's just titled Dad. I wrote this at 1.30 in the morning several months after my dad died and I just could not sleep and it just kind of came tumbling out of my head. <laughs> okay. Five months before my dad killed himself, he texted me that he had had his arteries checked and they were all clear. I have to be around for my girl, he wrote. That's how I know how out of his mind he was when he died, singularly focused on ending his pain. My dad said things like that a lot. He was prolific when it came to letting me know how much I was loved. We were in touch every day, pretty much. He'd often tell me how lucky he was to have me as a daughter, check in to see how my day was going, or text me a, good night, honey. He would ask me to text him after I landed safely on the ground after a flight. He didn't want me to struggle and made sure I didn't want for much. That's why I was still on the family cell phone plan at 35. <laughs> and why he tacked my car, <laughs> and why he tacked my car onto his XM radio package. And why he regularly asked how I was doing financially if I needed a little cushion, given my writer, grad school, nutritionist salaries over the years. Once in a while, he'd send me photo collages of myself as a little girl and write on them words like, no one was as cute as you. Oh, the biased eyes of a parent. If he could have transported me back in time to when I was two and lived in the room above his, he would have. Even though at that age, I would wake him up regularly just to let him know I couldn't sleep. I called him for advice, ranging from solving car issues to figuring out my finances and relationship concerns. A big tech and gadget whiz, he would set up my computers, give me tutorials on iPhone features, and offer me -me hand-me-down iPads, speakers, and digital cameras. He helped me figure out how I could afford my first condo, coming to the closing to make sure I asked all the right questions. When I moved to new cities, he was there, helping me pack, hanging pictures in apartments, buying me a winter coat and a nice dinner or two. I leaned on him more than I should have, but it was okay. He'd be around until I learned the ways of the world. He thought I was naive to those ways, too idealistic and not pragmatic enough. I thought he was too conservative and closed-minded. He started showing signs of anxiety and depression in 2005, 10 years before he died. Episodes of the come and go then became more frequent. Akathisia, a side effect of the psychotropic medications he was on, was what ultimately drove him to suicide. He couldn't stop moving. He'd lie down to sleep and bolt right back up, pace around the house, stomp in place, even try to jump out of moving cars. We learned that the inner restlessness is too much to take for most people, and death often becomes the only welcome relief. He, like others, described it as torture. We tried Western and Eastern approaches, neurofeedback, ECT, talk therapy, neurotransmitter support, supplements, energy work, new doctors. It was becoming a permanent situation, and he saw his future looking bleaker and bleaker. Don't worry about anything, he would tell me sometimes during his healthy moments. Let me do the worrying for you. I never did, and I've realized that no one can do the worrying for anyone else. We can support each other, of course, but we must carry our own burdens. 
My tough storytelling dynamic street smart dad was more fragile than we ever knew. When I had to learn the ways of the world, it was quick and fast. I met with a lawyer and started the process of guardianship of my father, who did not fight me on it. The morning he died, we were planning to move him into an assisted facility, an assisted living facility. He did not want to go. My family and I knew his death by suicide was likely. He had tried twice before in less than three years, and his psychologist had warned us that the third time is usually the charm. He had just been released from an inpatient psychiatric hospital and was actively talking about wanting to die. I felt like I was in a race to save a man's life. The irony is that my dad would have done anything to take away even the smallest hint of pain I ever had, and his death has caused me the worst suffering of my life. But no one can do the worrying or the grieving for me. Despite my father's best intentions, he couldn't either. I would take him back in a second, but I had become stronger, more independent, and more savvy. I'd become an advocate for suicide prevention, join the board of an organization that aims to prevent medication-induced suicides, and I'm looking to focus my private practice and nutrition on brain wellness. The fierce love my dad showed me throughout my life bolsters me on a regular basis. As I make decisions, get my car tuned up, make career moves, even choose who to date, I hear his voice in my head. I value his opinion, but we still have the parent-child conflict. Sometimes I listen, sometimes I don't. I'm becoming more and more my own person. Six months after my dad died, I had a dream in which he told me he was in Finley Park. I searched everywhere he and I had ever lived to see if there was a Finley Park in those cities and towns. I couldn't find anything. A few months later, I was looking to foster a dog, and as I scrolled through an email with several dogs in need of homes, one named Finley caught my attention. I have since adopted her, and she adds so much joy, laughter, and love into my life. I like to think my dad, in a way, sent her to me to ease my burdens a little. Her middle name is Louisa, after my dad, Louis, and I think he'd agree that when it comes to dogs, no one is as cute as she is. <laughs> I absolutely love that story, and I love that it came to you just all in one piece. I love your perspective on this because it seems like you've had a chance to step out a little bit and see from the outside how this has really shaped and transformed your life. Where I want to go with this, I think, is to talk a little bit more about things that might have been in your head either leading up to or immediately after his suicide, because I don't think it's something that a lot of people are familiar with. I think they're familiar with these uh, drug commercials where side effects may include suicidal tendencies and all of that. But what was the struggle of dealing with mental health versus medication versus, like, was there a quest to find the right cocktail? Was it not even an option? Like, and then I guess in the aftermath, did you or your family somehow feel responsible for not being able to do more? medically, because it sounds like you guys took a lot of steps to try and prevent this. I The line in your story, I felt like I was racing to save a dying man. Yeah. It just hit me so hard. Yeah, I mean, it was a complicated situation because my mom actually um, and dad separated and then divorced not long before he died, like in, in the last couple of years before he died. So before that, she was, you know, the primary kind of caretaker and was trying all these alternatives. My mom and I are a little bit more inclined to do kind of alternative types of treatment, and my dad kind of geared a little more toward 
um, Western medicine. So he wasn't as open to some of those things. And so we didn't really have much of a choice in terms of the medications and, like you said, the cocktails. So that was kind of what he chose, the route he chose to go. So, you know, that's really what ultimately led to the akathisia because medications are really the only thing that causes it. It's not a natural condition. So it's a side effect of SSRIs, psychotropic medications, but we've actually learned since that it can be other medications too, like Chantix and even some steroids and things like that. So everyone just reacts a little bit differently. And some people, I don't know if it's like based on genetics or exactly what the mechanism is, but if they're just really sensitive to some of these medications. And so my dad, you know, had reactions to certain things and then he would kind of come out of it and be okay for a little while and he would kind of experience the akathisia again. But the akathisia was awful to watch. I mean, it was like he literally could not stop moving. He would just pace around the house. He would, you know, rub his hands up and down his legs. He would, you know, like I said, try to get out of moving cars. And that wasn't at that point, it wasn't to kill himself. It was just because he was so anxious. He didn't know what to do with himself. He was, like, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. fidgety. And so that was really awful to watch. And then he would say things like, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm being tortured like a dog. Like, I I think he felt like there were feelings on his skin, like almost like bugs crawling on him. And, I mean, it's it was awful. And I think with suicide, you know, people often think, just talking to other people who've experienced suicide loss, you know, what could I have done? What could we have done? There's so much guilt associated with it. And I know there is with different types of death too, but I think maybe even more so with suicide because you feel like you should have been able to stop it and prevent it. And mm-hmm. the thing with my dad versus some other people who um, take their lives is we knew it was coming. It didn't come out of nowhere. A lot of people didn't even know that their, you know, loved one was going to kill themselves. But, um, we knew that it was, you know, a very likely thing because he had tried before and he was kind of talking about it and he just kept saying, like, I can't live like this. And so that's why I kind of said, like, you know, I was on a race to save his life because I knew it was sort of imminent. And so at that point, my mom, you know, was no longer living with my dad and she was still very helpful and really cared about him and was helping me through this whole process. But I was pretty much doing a lot of this alone like I have I have a brother but we actually have different dads so um you know he had hired caregivers and I was I had taken mm-hmm. off of work he was living in Florida I live in Chicago and so I was um I took off work and I was there for several weeks just trying to really get him help and tried you know we found a new more kind of integrative psychiatrist who was great um and said it was the worst case of akathisia he'd ever seen um, and basically, without explicitly saying so, kind of indicated that he felt like it was too far gone, really. But he, you know, he definitely tried what he could. And, um, yeah, I was just doing everything I could. I was taking my dad to different doctor's appointments and neurofeedback and just trying everything. But it was still just, he, you know, the akathisia never really let up. So it was hard to watch. What, did it, what could it feel like? becoming a primary caregiver for for him because it sounds like from the story that you're told he was always in such a giving place for you and a lot of times when children start to take care of their parents there's this 
this role reversal, but there's a lot of other feelings and emotions kind of swirled up within that. Yeah, I mean, it feels, especially at his age, he was only 63 when he died, and I was 35, so it felt like, you know, I had seen my mom go through it with her parents, like my mom, my grandma had dementia, and you know, but my mom at that time was in her 50s, my grandma was older, you know, so it felt like I was too young to be doing this, and my dad was too mm-hmm. young going through this, you know, so I, I, it was definitely overwhelming, like I felt like I really had to kind of grow up in a sense, even though, you know, I am a grown-up. <laughs> I live on my own. I take care of myself. But, but, you know, it's a whole different level of, like, oh, my God, I have to make these major decisions and, like, call caregivers and take him to doctor's appointments. Yeah, I really had never been in that position before. And, yeah, it did feel like a role reversal because, like you said, he, he you know, kind of was also overprotective. Like, even when I was in my 30s, you know, he would like to, I think he liked that I called him for advice or, you know, he liked to be kind of a caretaker and treat me to little things like dinner, you know. And so I think it was this really weird situation, like, to become, going through the process of becoming a guardian of him felt like, oh, my gosh. And he, I was actually really surprised that he didn't fight me on it because, you know, he was, when he wasn't, you know, kind of in the throes of, either akathisia or his depression or anxiety was, like, you know, kind of this tough, like, dynamic personality. So it was just weird to see him, you know, like like he kind of regressed into back into, like, a child, you know. So, um, wow, yeah. Yeah, like, just really needy and, yeah, kind of, like, confused as well. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely a weird experience and um but I just had to do it like I was like okay like this is the situation I'm in I'm trying to save his life you know like literally so I was just like doing research and you know my family was very supportive they just weren't physically there I was you know right make these decisions with them you know my my dad um has two siblings my aunt and uncle so they were really supportive as well and yeah, all tried to be there for each other, but it was it was definitely really overwhelming. I hear you on that. I hear you on that for sure. And I know you touched on the fact that the suicide is different than other suicides because it was expected. And this is going to come very poorly phrased, but did that make it easier for you and your family when it finally happened? You know what? I actually think in a way it did. I would say yes and no. So, you know, when it happens, you're still shocked. I mean, I'm still shocked to almost two and a half years later. Like, I still mm-hmm. have said many times in the last few weeks to friends and family, like, I still just can't wrap my head around it. Like, I don't get how my dad is not here on this earth anymore. So it's, I think it's always a shock, no matter, you know, even if you're sort of expecting it. But at the same time... You know, I'm not sure that I would say the fact that we sort of thought it might happen made it easier, but the the fact that he'd attempted suicide before, this was his third attempt. And so we, like my mom, my aunt, and my uncle are all kind of at peace with it in a sense. Even though none of us wanted this and we all find it really difficult, we, you know, are pretty clear that this is what he wanted. He was suffering so much that he had, you know, tried several times, and this is, like, the path that 
you know, kind of he needed to take in a, in a sort of like spiritual, from a spiritual place. But I don't know that it, I mean, yeah, it's a hard question. You know, I don't know that it makes it easier necessarily, mm-hmm. but in a, in, I think in a way, it kind of does. I think if it had come out of completely nowhere and we had no clue it was coming, I do think it would be, it would be harder to find some peace with it. Because I think then you're even more like, well, what could I have done? How could I not have seen this? You know, like the fact that we knew and we were tr- like, I feel like we really tried everything we could. And the fact that it happened from like this existential place, okay, you know, like we finally had to just let him do this in a way, even though we don't, you know, let him, but you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was kind of a, um, the word release is popping up into my head. You're um, almost like a, you're free to go now and not, and it, and it hurts and it sucks and, and nobody really wants this but I'm hearing some kind of like a sense of of relief maybe um, yeah I mean my mom or just like a visible end to whatever he was going through yeah I mean even my you know today's his his birthday he would have been 66 and you know so my mom texted me and you know she said you know I'm thinking of, of him so much today and just knowing that he's at peace and she's said that many times like I just know now he's at peace and you know I know that's a lot of people say that when someone dies, and I, I think because he was like suffering so much, and, like felt so tortured, and you know, we do kind of say that to each other. Although I think it's easier for my mom to feel that way. Like I'm like, yeah, I know, but it, what else? You know, I I have a little more like, but what if we could have done this? You know, mm-hmm. so everyone within the family still, I think, reacts a little bit differently. But but overall, I've let go a lot of the guilt. It still comes up a little bit. <laughs> but I've, I've released a lot of it. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about the immediate aftermath. What was, what was life like for you then? Not just in terms of logistics, like did you move and planning a ceremony and, and things like that, but, but what place emotionally and mentally, like where was your heart? at this time well it's really interesting because immediate like right when we found out I didn't even cry like the caregiver was there so he had slipped out basically while the caregiver was there and like into the garage taken the car and drove to a bridge and the caregiver was I think she was like in the kitchen like cutting up an apple or something so she didn't even see him and I was sleeping it was early morning and so we were like, we knew, so we got, I got a phone call from one of his good friends who told me, because my dad had called him and told him he was driving to the bridge in Sarasota, the Ringling Bridge. And I was so confused. I was like, what do you mean? Like, he's in his bedroom. And that, so I'm like getting out of bed, like looking around, and then he's not in his room. And I go into the garage, and, you know, I saw one of his cars was gone. And so... Then, you know, kind of hit me, and then we were waiting. Like, we didn't know what was – we didn't know, like, what the outcome was going to be. So that was really crazy. And when we found out, my aunt had come over, and when we found out, yeah, I didn't even – it didn't hit me right away, you know. And I was, mm-hmm. like, comforting the caregiver because she, like, fell to the ground because I think she was, like, oh, my God, felt so – must have felt guilty and shocked. 
you know, and then my mom got there later, and, and then, you know, then it kind of hit me. But I think the first day was, it was a little bit, I mean, but, you know, the first probably few weeks, but especially the first day was kind of surreal. Like, I don't feel like I was crying as much then, almost, as I was later. And and then the the next few weeks were just so hectic because... I knew I had to do all this stuff before I came back to Chicago. Like, we literally had to put his house on the market. We had to, like, clean out his entire house, put his house on the market, you know, plan the memorial. So we were, like, going through his things, like, immediately. Um, And my family came, you know, like, my cousin and my brother and my uncle was there and aunt. So we were, like, going through his things right away, kind of like, hey, do you want this? Like, you know, so it was just... It was a lot, like, and they were, I mean, they were kind of, you know, my family was kind of like, I know this must be hard for you, like, tell us if you don't want us, you know, and I wanted them to have things of his, but it was just like, oh my God, like, there was no time to even think. (laughs) It was, it sounds like an expedited process. Yeah, and I do remember one moment that still kind of bothers me because, like, I just was like, wanted to lie in my dad's bed and just like, kind of feel close to him, and, and I remember one moment where my cousin and his wife and my boyfriend at the time were going they wanted to go out for a little bit and I didn't want to go and my mom and my aunt were like you should really get out for a little like it will be good for you and and so I ended up going and it was fine but I really felt like in that moment like I should not I just wanted to like stay home and like I knew we were getting rid of like his bed soon and like all these things and then I wouldn't even have like these pieces of him to be close to and I just felt like I didn't want to go anywhere I just wanted to be home like near his stuff and it just felt like too soon for me to like be going out and like taking pictures and smiling you know um yes absolutely and so I I said something to my mom later I'm like you know you guys pushed me to go out and I, I didn't want to and I mean, it was just this one moment. It wasn't like this ongoing thing where they were pushing me to do things. But I I just remember that clearly as an example of like, you know, you need to listen to what you need at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and not Absolutely. really just do things to appease other people. So Right. And it's so hard in the aftermath of a loss to really tune into what you're wanting in the moment because, hey... I have other people have expectations of you and you should go out and it will make you feel better. And then B, we experience big losses like that so infrequently that it's almost default to follow other people's template or like society's template for what to do. We don't really have that 100% trust in our in our gut instincts when things like this happen. Right, um, like you're like, I'm lie down. We're like, is this the right thing to do? Yeah, and so it's so much easier to say, I guess it would be good for me because everybody else is saying it's good for me, and I've never experienced this before, so maybe it is. Maybe it's something I don't. Yeah, I was thinking about it recently. I'm like, you know, it's almost like after, you know, a breakup or something like that where you are kind of wallowing for a while, and I, I don't know if that's the right term because I don't know if that sounds like minimizing it, wallowing, you know, but I feel like... Mm-hmm. You kind of need to do that for a while. Just like be really, really sad before you can, at some point, start to put one foot in front of the other again. You know, like it's okay for yes, a while yeah. to feel awful and like not want to move. I mean, there were times. So when I got back to Chicago after you know all of that, I mean, there were times when I would just sit on like my bed and stare at my boyfriend and be like, I, like I would just stare at him, like not saying anything. And just be, like, in this other world. Like, I don't even know what to do right now. And he would 
I think he was just like, I don't know what to do for you, you know, and I was like, I don't know either, you know, like, I mean, just these moments, and it really does, I think, come in, it, for me, it came in waves, like, like I've read about so much, where I'd kind of be okay for a while, and then something would happen where, you know, I'd hear a song, or, or just even, I would just start thinking about my dad or something, and, you know, it would just totally hit me. Wait, sorry, my dog. Yeah. Hold on. Finley, come here. Is that, oh my gosh, it's Finley. I just love that she was in the story and now she's here and we can all hear her. I know. <laughs> she's so sweet. I know that dream was so vivid. It was really so crazy. I want to know, and the barking's fine. Hi, Finley. <laughs> I'm interested in this, in this space of like the aftermath of death and kind of piecing your life back together, what was it that caused you to really come back to life again? Was it a resource or a class or a book or a person who said something and you're like, oh my gosh, I can step back into, I don't want to call it the real world, but like a fully conscious life. Like when, what pulled you kind of out of the numbness of that? You know, it was, I was thinking about this recently because I, as an integrative dietitian, like I, I look at things holistically and kind of a person as a whole and all the pieces fitting together, not just like, here's your heart and here's your liver, like everything's connected. And I think that's sort of how I approach my grieving process, not intentionally, but just because it's what felt natural to me. So mm-hmm. in other words, I kind of jumped into a lot of things at once because I like I like to research and kind of figure things out. Like literally the first I think the day he died or the day after I was already researching more about akathisia because we knew what it was but we didn't really understand like the full extent of it really. And so right. I don't know I just I wanted to find out if there were any resources or organizations and and I came across um, MIST, the Medication Induced Suicide Prevention and Education Foundation, in memory of Stuart Dolan, which is, I know, uh, <laughs> a mouthful. Um, mm-hmm. And they were based in Chicago. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to get in touch with them. And so basically they are an organization that raises awareness about akathisia. Like that's their simple mission is that we just want to educate people about, you know, what akathisia is if you – start, stop, or change a medication and notice any increased agitation, restlessness, um, you know, really ramped up anxiety that we need to call attention to this person's doctor. And so we want people, you know, family members to know about this, social workers, like people who are kind of watching out for this person who might be getting treatment. Yeah. So now I'm on the board of this organization. I mean, I got in touch with them right away. And I ended up meeting them for, like, the director and the founder for dinner and just shared my story. And I just wanted to channel my energy in in that direction of getting the word out of, you know, how can I spread this? Like, Were they surprised to hear from you so soon after your loss? Yeah, it's so interesting because I've met so many people who are like, wow, I couldn't have done certain things so soon after my loss. and. And I think everyone, you know, is on their own timetable. For me, it just felt really like I needed to do this. It was just really helpful for me. And I remember at one at one point my aunt 
was like, you know, maybe it's too much suicide stuff because I had also gotten involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and I had gone, I've been, I started to go to, like three months after my dad died, I went to, um, they have like a conference every year and one of the days of the conference is just for suicide survivors, they call them, like lost survivors. Um, not for, like, the other days are for professionals, like social workers and things like that. But one day is just for healing. And so I went to that, like, three months after my dad died, and I just wanted to kind of do all these things. And my aunt, I remember at one point she was kind of concerned because I think I called her crying one night, like, missing my dad. And she said, maybe it's just too much suicide stuff on your mind. Like, maybe you're talking about it too much and thinking about it too much. And But I knew for me that that wasn't didn't make it worse, you know, like I was already thinking about it. <laughs> so to mm-hmm. be around other people who kind of had had a similar experience or understood or, I don't know, it was just really helpful. I also got involved in Catholic Charities has a loss, they call it loss, um, program here in Chicago, which is basically support groups for people who've lost someone to suicide. So they have for people who've lost someone, I think, within the first year, it's um, like an eight-week support group where you're kind of going through it weekly with the same people. And then um, after that, they have, like, I still go to drop-in meetings sometimes, and that's open to anyone. So I did that, and then I did a more general grief support group. I became an advocate for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is kind of a little bit of public policy like writing letters and making phone calls to Congress people. And um, I went to Springfield for one day and tried to get the message across. And so I've just done these different things that, again, for me just felt really, I think it helped me move forward. I mean, I read a lot of books. (laughs) I watch movies about suicide, like documentaries, any documentary that was related to suicide, like trying to understand and just, I don't know, I just found it comforting to... I don't know, I guess try to understand or hear other people's stories. I love that because that's very similar to my story where the instant, like the instant I lost my mom is like, I have to research this and figure out what I'm going through because there have to be other people who have experienced this. Was that ever like an innate instinct in you or did anybody ever tell you about the power of sharing stories in a community or did this just happen and that was, that was your first thought or your gut instinct? Like, were you raised in a family that told stories to really pain? Where did that Where did that urge come from? I mean, that's a good question. I, no, I wouldn't say I was necessarily, I mean, stories in a certain sense. Actually, my dad told a lot of stories, <laughs> like the same stories for years. My mom was like, okay, I heard this one 20,000 times, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. but not necessarily for this purpose, right? Like for healing, it was more just like, this is a funny story, make people laugh, you know. Yeah. But but I think the support group thing, no, I don't know. I just I think I just thought like, oh, this is what people do. They go to support groups and you know, of course I've heard of people going to support groups and finding it useful and and it's just like a place. It's just sort of this carving out this space that you can cry. like I can tell the same, you know, I I'll go to a support group meeting and talk to a friend maybe about something. And, like, when I'm in the support group, like, I know I might end up crying because I'm just, like, in this space where it's, like, mm-hmm. everyone else gets it. I don't know. It's really interesting. Like, it's not like I try not to cry, you know, with a friend or 
you know, then I know I can cry in the support group, but it, more, it sometimes just happens. Like being in that environment just allows you to release a little bit more. So I'm not sure. I don't know that anyone necessarily told me I should do that. I think it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, this is one avenue to go. Um, that mm-hmm. might be helpful, you know, because I was just kind of looking for things that would be helpful. You know, that was just like one piece of it. I also was doing a lot of like yoga because I felt like being in this sort of dark room, like in a little corner, like in my own world on my mat was just helpful too to just be like kind of, I don't know, like contained sort of. Getting a picture of like a sanctuary. Yeah. Like a home base for you. And then, of course, like you talk about a lot is like rituals. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, like the first, his first birthday that passed a few months later after he died, like my boyfriend at the time and I, we got a frappuccino in my dad's honor because he loved frappuccinos from Starbucks. So we, like, got a frappuccino and um, <laughs> <laughs> and just little things I like that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that kind of thing. Or like I, you know, dropped some some things into the into Lake Michigan at one point, just like my own little kind of ritual for him, like that, you know, things that meant something to me and like about grief and about my dad and and for his um so we had a memorial service, you know, like I don't know what was it like a week after he died, something like that, and then. And then I went, so that was in February, and then in in June, actually over, it happened to be over Father's Day weekend, so a few months later, I went back to Sarasota because we did something called, um, it was like a an eternal reef, a reef ball, R-E-E-F, so basically, it, it's like a an eco-friendly option for people, so he was cremated, and then his ashes were put into this reef ball that become like a living reef for fish you know like coral cool I have never heard of that it was amazing because we first of all you can decorate the reef with things anything you want so we you know like his friends and some family gathered and we put things into it because it's kind of like a like a clay ceramic thing so we could put things into it that that he loved and cared about. Like, you know, I said he was kind of really into gadgets. So we put like, you know, his iPhone and his stylus and just little mementos and tokens of things. Like we wanted, you know, everyone put different things in there. Like, I think we put a Dunkin' Donuts card in there that he, you know, he loved. (laughs) You know, like little things. And um, like his eyeglass case, like he had more glass, more of those like cheap like reading glasses we found after he died. Mm-hmm. Like, like 30 pairs. We're like, oh my God, who needs this many? <laughs> so like we put one of those in there. And anyway, so, and then we went out on a boat and like had this beautiful ceremony where they lower it into the water and like say their name. And I mean, it was incredible. Like all of, you know, a bunch of his friends and some family went and it was just like really touching and beautiful. And then we have the coordinates of where he is in Sarasota Bay. So we can go out like anytime and see. Oh, that's beautiful. So yeah, so that was like really special and healing and felt really, you know, like this beautiful kind of like memorial and like token of, you know, our love to him Mm -hmm. and kind of like this ritual that was really fitting for him because he was a boater and, you know, loved going out on the water with his friends. And so that was 
it was like I knew exactly like we're doing this you know like there was no question of how we were gonna you know bury him or memorialize him so so all of those things together just like you know the reading the support group getting involved in different things you know journaling yoga you know it all just helped and talking about it like I really I have such great friends and family and I you know I think a lot of people with suicide feel like they can't talk about it and it's stigmatized. I don't know if that's more of a generational thing, but I didn't, I never felt like that. Like people were really open to talking about it and supportive. So that really helped too. You know, like, I, like, you know, the other thing is, you know, I think something that helps with grief a lot is, and I've read this too, is just talking about it. Like trying to answer all these questions, especially maybe with suicide, because there's so many more questions a lot of times, I think, than with other types of deaths. Like, why Mm -hmm. did this really happen? Even though you might have a sense of why it happened, you still don't fully understand. Like, why did they decide to do this? You know, so, and so you have to ask these questions over and over until, I've read this, like, over and over until you don't need to know anymore. Or until it's sort of resolved in your mind. And so, like, my mom and I have had the same conversation so many times, like, trying to (laughs) sort of psychoanalyze my dad. And, like, you know, we can keep doing it for, I mean, we've done it recently, like, years, you know, a couple Mm -hmm. years later. And it's, it that helps, too, like, just talking about it and trying to understand from every angle and, you know, like, what was his childhood like that might have led to some of these you know, issues later in his life and really, you know, he retired really young, like maybe that contributed to it and, you know, like all these things that we were trying to figure out, I think being able to talk about it without someone being like, okay, I think you've talked about it enough, you know, like just giving you the space to be able to go over and over the same things until you kind of don't need to anymore. So we don't need to as much anymore, I'll say that. It's a gift, that empathic listening of Listening without judgment, listening without analyzing or criticizing or fixing. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm also Yeah, and the thing is, I'm surrounded by therapists. Like, my <laughs> my brother is a family <laughs> therapist. My best friend's a psychologist. So, you know, that also helps to get some free therapy. <laughs> That's also a gift. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and then I, I want to know... Um, how the person you are today, you said almost about two and a half years later, is different from the person that you were before your dad's loss. And this can pertain to anything, not even just your relationship with him, which of course has changed, but every aspect of your life. How do you, how has your perspective changed since this experience? I mean, it's so interesting because I was just saying to my mom recently, I'm like, I don't know. Like, a lot of people feel like they're, like, this different person after this huge loss. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm a different person. And so, you know, I mean, I'm sure in some ways I am because how can you not be? But I still, you know, I don't know that I can put it into words necessarily except to say, of course, I do think, you know, I've learned to be pretty resilient and stronger than I realized I could be because I think before – my dad died, I used to think about, like, oh, one day my parents are going to die, and, like, how am I going to survive that? Like, I don't think I can live without my parents. Like, how am I supposed to do that? And, you know, and now I'm like, okay, well, I guess I can. You know, although there's moments, like, I can remember one moment clearly, probably within the first year of his dying, that I, like, I got really panicked and thinking, like, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to live, like, 
without him on this earth, you know? Like, it just felt so foreign Mm -hmm. and, like, lonely because your parents are, like, the most familiar people in the world to you, you know? Like, they've been there (laughs) since before day one, you know? And it's, like, my dad's voice is, like, one of the most familiar voices to me in the world, and how am I supposed to do this? But, you know, then you just... Yeah, you just kind of take it day by day, put one foot in front of the other and have a new reality. And there's always a huge void. Like, it's just a huge void in my life. But, you know, I do feel, I still feel, like, pretty happy every day, even though I still miss him a lot. And sometimes it's way harder than others. So, yeah, I mean, I think I've just had to take on a lot more, like, you know, from from figuring out all this stuff with you know, his guardianship and caregivers and, you know, kind of growing up in that way and then, you know, putting his house on the market and selling it and all of that. And now, I mean, he was the person I would go to for, like, those kinds of questions and I don't have him to, to go to anymore. And, I mean, I have other people, like my un- his his brother, my uncle, is kind of my surrogate dad now and my mom is really helpful. You know, so I have people, but I'm also like, okay, I'm 37. <laughs> I can make some decisions on my own. I don't need you know, to ask people for so much advice. So I think, yeah, I mean, growing up, becoming a little more independent are definitely two big things. And then I think also it's just comforting yourself. Like, yes, I have great friends and family and I can always turn to them, but I, you know, I don't actually love crying in front of people. I don't know. <laughs> Believe it or not, most people don't. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I don't know who does, but, like, I just, a lot of times, it's funny because I really like to talk about a lot of my feelings and things, and but a lot of times, like, when I've been kind of in a sad place, I just would rather be alone. So that's kind of a little bit of a shift that I've noticed. The other thing is, I feel like I was really private before about my family and, like, any issues going on, like like, with my dad before he died, and now afterwards, I've kind of been like, you know what, like, I want to share his story and talk about suicide and not kind of hide it or um, protect him or, like, because I feel like actually talking about it is a tribute to him and can help other people, so... I love that. Yeah, so that's also been a big change, I would say. Well, we're wrapping up at the end here, but I want to let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to get in touch and, and learn more about akathisia or suicide loss or prevention, and then anything else related to any projects you're working on. Where would you like to be found? <laughs> sure. Well, my website for my nutrition practice is cindyclinger.com, so that's C-I-N-D-Y-K-L-I-N-G-E-R.com. Um, and they can find me, people can find me there and reach out, you know, about nutrition or, or anything else they want to. And I think nutrition and just healthy living and healthy lifestyle, like getting enough sleep and exercising, you know, also plays such a huge role in kind of staying healthy while you're grieving. I know that those are also really important. And so if anyone wanted to contact me about, you know, healthy eating habits and, lifestyle habits that can support them during a grieving process, I would totally welcome that as well. Rock on. Yeah. Cool. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It was really great to be here. 
So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much to my friend Cindy Klinger, who first found my name and business card in a coffee shop, and then we reconnected and just have stayed in touch ever since. So honored to have you on our show today. If you'd like to check out Cindy's work, you can find her website at cindyklinger.com. I would be so, so grateful if for my 25th, my antique birthday, you could leave some reviews and some thoughts on my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide. Thank you always, always to the amazing, talented Addie Goldstein for composing our theme music. I listen to it even when I'm not recording and it makes me smile. You can always find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. We're here to support each other. Because even through grief, we are growing.